Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are listening to the next Best Picture podcast. This is our review of Hacksaw Ridge, followed by an interview with the sound mixer on that film, Kevin O'Connell. What the hell is your delay, Captain? We're waiting, sir. Waiting for what? Private Doss. Who the hell is Private Doss? I always dreamed about being a doctor, but uh, didn't get much school. I can't stay here while all them go fight for me. But you figure this war is just going to fit in with your ideas? While everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. And that's going to be my way to serve. This is a personal gift from the United States government designed to bring death to the enemy. Well, I'm sorry, Sergeant. I can't touch a gun. She don't kill. No, sir. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in war. Private Doss does not believe in violence. Do not look to him to save you on the battlefield. I don't think this is a question of religion. I think this is cowardice. I'll fall in love with you because you weren't like anyone else. You're saying you could go to prison. I don't know how I'm going to live with myself if I don't stay true to what I believe. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Private Doss, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. Alright everyone, the trailer you were just listening to was the trailer for Mel Gibson's latest film, Hacksaw Ridge. It is the true story of Private Desmond T. Doss, played by Andrew Garfield, who won the Congressional Medal of Honor despite refusing to bear arms during World War II on religious grounds. Doss was drafted and ostracized by fellow soldiers for his pacifist stance, but went on to earn respect and adoration for his bravery, selflessness, and compassion after he risked his life without firing a single shot to save 75 men in the Battle of Okinawa. The cast includes Andrew Garfield, Sam Worthington, Luke Bracey, Teresa Palmer, Hugo Weaving, Rachel Griffiths, and Vince Vaughn. Joining me today for this review, we have Will Mavity. And Will, you actually have a very special announcement to coincide with this review. Why don't you tell them what's going on? So, if you stick to the end of our review, we have someone who worked on the film giving us a very in-depth interview, both on the process of making this film and on his career as a whole. Coming up after the review, we have 20-time Academy Award nominee, Kevin O'Connell, the man who not only provided the sound design for Hacksaw Ridge, but who also mixed the sound for Top Gun, Transformers, Spider-Man, Armageddon, Twister, and more. So stick around after the review so you can hear Mr. O'Connell's take on the film and on his career as a whole. Yeah, definitely within the sound community, this guy is a legend. So that should be definitely be a lot of fun. I can't wait to hear it. But getting back to Hacksaw Ridge for a minute here, uh, this story, this is quite 
the remarkable story, if I do say so myself. And there's certainly a lot to talk about in regards to it. I'm not going to... Well, let me get this out of the way really quick. I'm going to put my personal feelings towards Mel Gibson aside for this, and I'm going to look at this as simply a movie that I saw in the movie theater. How is it as a movie? Forget about everything you know about Mel Gibson. Yes, he is a director on this, but this is a movie, people. We're not here to judge the man. We're here to judge the movie. Enough about that. Let's toss it off to you first here, Will. What did you think of Hacksaw Ridge? So Hacksaw Ridge is a film I saw twice and I think needed to see twice. Um, It is very, very old-fashioned. I would say it harkens back to Sergeant York, aside from the graphic violence and gore that Gibson drenches the film in. Otherwise, it could have easily been made in the late 1940s or early 1950s. I would say that old-fashioned nature is both a strength and a flaw. But it's a film that on second viewing, I guess that old-fashioned nature ultimately shifted more towards the strength side for me. I would say it is undeniably cheesy, but it almost embraces its cheese and runs with it. It's certainly lacking in characterization on its side characters, but Garfield's central struggle is fascinating and engaging. And though I do have some problems with the script as a whole... There's no denying that Gibson directs the hell out of this film and creates some truly visceral battle sequences. So it's not a life-changing film, but I think it's a damn solid film. And it's a film that I really liked more on a second viewing. So we'll, do, we'll go in more depth as we go on. But yeah, it was, I was surprised how much more I liked it my second time going through. I can tell you this. I saw this film with my roommate and his girlfriend. And when we walked out of the theater, all three of us had conflicting viewpoints on the film. I very much liked the most out of the three of us. Uh, My roommate was a little bit below me. And his girlfriend absolutely hated it. She couldn't get past the overly dramatic for storytelling that Gibson employs in this. She couldn't get over the awkwardness that permeates throughout the first 20 minutes or so of this film. And she also just could not get over um, just some more of the religious aspects, which honestly, personally, I didn't feel beat me over the head when I was watching it at all. I thought that it worked very well with the character and it wasn't something that was totally forced upon me what was forced was the way gibson does present the story and what i mean by that is ultimately this while i was watching this i kept on having like these flashbacks to watching braveheart you know the score swells up and really elicits like a really strong emotional response out of you and it's manipulating it's it's beautiful but it's manipulating the storytelling beats are simple they're nothing that are it's definitely very formulaic undeniable yeah there's nothing revolutionary about it whatsoever you can see to a t uh, here's how we have to understand his you know it's like we're, we're going to establish his religious viewpoints early on in the film by showing his relationship with his family back at home we're going to show how he meets his wife so that you know that he's got something to fight for to come back home for it's it's all very very even how he becomes interested in medicine you know 
Oh yeah. She happens to give him the book. I mean, undeniably they, uh, they were some very heavy handed ways of introducing his background. And also I thought the tone in those early parts was a little bit strange. Like I certainly thought a lot of his interactions with Teresa Palmer were amusing, but for a film that is about the horror of war and is gruesome as it goes on, it was a little strange to me how much of the first third they played for comedy, wouldn't you say? Oh, I I think that it was an awkward comedy that many people mistook as being cringeworthy. And in that way, I think it like, it's not bad. It's not bad filmmaking. People like confuse feeling awkward in a movie theater with bad filmmaking. No, it's just showing you that this guy is a social outcast. He's different than everybody else. That's why she falls in love with him like she tells him in the film. And he's just completely, you know, fascinated by her. So he stares at her longingly and it's a little creepy and yet it's cute at the same time. And it's got a good hearted nature to it. It's nothing offensive or anything like that at all. I, I honestly did not have much of a problem with it. What I did have a problem with were some of these scenes when we get to basic training and we're meeting all the other soldiers. Now, this I had more of a problem with. I had a problem with these distinctive accents that that basically told you where all these guys were from. I thought that was very formulaic. I did not understand why they had the need to show off this one guy completely butt-ass naked in one scene. I get it. It's for comedy purposes. But like that was very unrealistic for me to the point of just being completely ridiculous. And if there's anybody in this cast that is a real misfire as far as just miscasting goes it's vince vaughn in my opinion oh yeah and i like vince vaughn i don't mind vince vaughn when he's doing comedy and there's some scenes when he's doing the whole arlie army thing from full metal jack and he's like berating people and i guess it's supposed to be funny i I don't know you know i mean i i did i did find some of his drill instructor comments to be funny i'm sure he improved a lot of it I think my bigger problem with him was actually whenever he tried to sell the more serious side of the character and get into the dramatic beats later on during the actual battle. Oh, see, now there's one dramatic scene before the battle where Andrew Garfield's character is supposedly, they think, going to give up and give in. And I think him and Vince Vaughn share a a good moment in the barracks together in front of the the other soldiers. But you're right, when we get to to the battle itself later on Vince Vaughn tonally for me it just it, it did not work w- what did you think though of Sam Worthington in this so I I have always liked but not loved Sam Worthington and he was fine in here the problem was his accent went in and out so much it was it was definitely distracting for me you know it was hard for me to judge his performance as a whole because you would get variations from private, I'm going to have a drum you out of my battalion if you don't know what I'm doing. You know, it was uh, <laughs> those, yeah. th- those, those swings from dramatic Southern to Australian. I, I don't have that much to say about Worthington's performance. As a whole, it wasn't bad, but the accent certainly bothered me. And, I mean, as far as performances go, I think we would be remiss if we did not talk about the 
always fantastic. He needs to work more. My God, I I, I adore Hugo Weaving, man. He was great. I agree. That lip quiver scene at dinner. Oh, he's heartbreaking. Oh, I would I would honestly watch a whole movie about a shell shocked World War One veteran played by Hugo Weaving. Easily. He uh, his his drunk role was definitely written to be a little on the nose, but he slayed. I mean, undeniably struck. I honestly wish he were getting a little bit of supporting actor traction. If he had a bigger role, and if the film ended up being big with the Academy, I think he would have stood a chance. I mean, yes, him and Garfield were easily the MVPs of the whole film. Oh, yeah, we, we, we got to talk about Garfield. How, how can you not in this? Uh, what did you think of the accent? Was it bothersome for you? Do you think he nailed it? So the accent definitely takes some getting used to. I will be honest, he did remind me slightly of Forrest Gump in the early stages of the film, but I think that go- that was deliberate. He's a very awkward character. He doesn't fit in. And I got used to his accent after about 10 minutes and his general mannerisms, and by the end, I thought he slayed. I mean, it was a very emotional performance. That scene where he's breaking down in the jail cell and beating the walls, and then pretty much his entire performance during the actual Battle of Okinawa, the horror on his face as he sees men cut down before him. Garfield is a very talented actor, and I'm so glad to see him doing interesting projects again. Yeah, I will go so far as to say that Despite my trepidations heading into this film, I think this is his best performance. I would agree. In my opinion. I would absolutely agree. And I'm very, very proud to have witnessed the growth of his career, you know, from humble beginnings to what it's become now. I mean, last year with 99 Homes, how how can we write off the social network? The guy is very talented for sure. And we'll keep on being so. Now, let's talk about the man behind the film. Let's talk about Mel Gibson for a moment. Not Mel Gibson the person, like I alluded to earlier. No, no, no. We're not going to do that. Let's talk about his work on the film. And I know we're like alluding to it here and there a little bit. You know, we're talking about the tone of the film, um, the cheesiness aspect of it. But this is what everybody really wants to know. Does he nail the war scenes? Do the war scenes have the punch that you would expect from a Mel Gibson war film? And... My answer is unequivocally yes. I think Gibson, despite what you may think of the man, I'm going to quote South Park here for a second, that son of a bitch knows story structure. He knows how to make a good movie, man. As far as taking all the different departments from editing to sound to makeup, visual effects, and having it all just come together to create a very immersive cinematic experience that completely just pummels you. I don't mind it because I think what Gibson does is right when I feel like I'm about to be pummeled into submission and I'm about to reach my breaking point, he then lets up the gas pedal and he gives you those quieter moments in between to give you that moment to rest. He's done it time and time again with films like Braveheart, The Passion of the Christ, Apocalypto. This guy knows how to pace a film and his work here is, I think... Maybe some of his best directing work I've seen in the Battle for Okinawa. I'm a little skeptical on the other parts before Okinawa, but like everything when he gets when they get over to Japan is just 
amazing. There were one or two moments that didn't quite work for me as far as his directing choices went. I would specifically cite the moment when the cocky nemesis of Andrew Andrew Garfield starts in the battle and he grins and grabs somebody's body and then uses it uh, for cover the way that scene was handled. Um, and then also, you know what though? My, my audience gave a great reaction to that moment though. I, I really think it's something that while it may come off as silly and cheesy, I think general audiences really like, they really dig a moment like that. And then there were a couple, you know, you talked about the religious issues, uh, didn't bother you. And I would agree, uh, for, for the most part, a lot of the religious aspects just had to do with a man discussing his beliefs as he actually did in yeah, real life. Yeah, it's keeping in touch with the character. The one choice I would say it was probably Gibson's that – two choice. There were two moments that I didn't quite like as much that have to do with Gibson's direction. I would say the slow motion, 10-second long symbolic baptism scene after he first comes off the ridge, you know, in slow motion getting drenched in water. And then also the final shot. I thought those two things were too heavy-handed. And there, um, you know, the final shot is basically him symbolically rising to heaven. I, um, I, I did find that a little heavy-handed. But overall, yes, Mel Gibson slayed in directing those battle sequences. The, as you said, the way everything comes together... You know, the the amount of just noise you were pummeled by, the jump scares they worked in, you know, just this shocking nature with which characters are taken out. It is relentless, and it certainly has your adrenaline pumping. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about the moments where he chooses to go for slow-mo. It really, like, enhances the moment through sound. It, it It's like the guy just knows how to create a truly cinematic moment. It's undeniable. And the bottom line is, you know, he has faced some criticism for making a film that is about pacifism and drenching it in violence. But I think at the bottom line, in the interview, he said he really wanted to go for kind of the animalistic reaction from the viewer and to really make you feel the horror of war. And by God, you do. Oh, yeah, definitely. So much so that when this montage sequence occurs of Desmond Doss actually committing the the acts which ultimately gave him all the medals and honors you could possibly imagine. To me, it's one of the most powerful and most singular moments in any film I've seen this year. Even the line, help me get one more. Help me get one more. Like, when he's uttering that line over and over and this montage is playing out, the music is swelling and everything... It's not only one of my favorite scenes of 2016, but it also becomes one of my favorite quotes of 2016 as well. I think that Gibson really, really nails the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, it, so the other thing is, Gibson is is and always has been very good at nailing those moments that just kind of give you chills. And this film certainly had some moments like that, particularly in the beginning, it didn't quite land and went more on the cheesy side of things. But towards the end, when these moments that give you chills land, they really land. I mean, I you you can't help but feel inspired towards the end as the film goes on. I de- and I credit that to Gibson. I did get those chills moments. I wish the screenplay had given us more introduction to the side characters. Because I yeah. think these battle sequences could have packed even more of a punch 
if we had known more about the characters who were not Desmond Doss. Because the bottom line is, they were all introduced. There's the guy who works out naked. There's the guy who's a jerk. There's the guy who looks like a ghoul. And there's the guy who is mistakenly, the Polish guy who is mistakenly referred to as a Native American. We don't know anything about these characters. So that when they are taken out, you know, out of nowhere in the opening sequences of the battle, their deaths are surprising. But they really, I mean, Gibson captures so much of the horror of war. I think it could have packed even more of a punch if we oh, had no, gotten you're to totally know right too, because you're you're talking about these deaths and these moments of terror for these characters. And the one character that I think that we kind of care about a little bit dies off screen. And we don't even really get proper closure for that character, I felt like. He just gets told uh, to, to Desmond Doss that he dies of shock. And it's like, really? That's how they're going to have that end? Oh, okay, fine, I, 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 I suppose. It, it's, it's a little oddly handled. And if I could just throw one more criticism at the film, um, I would say that during the actual battle itself, the onslaught of sound and the chaos is very, very overwhelming that I felt like there needed to be a little bit more cross-cutting between characters. I feel there's long stretches of time where I was fixated on Vince Vaughn's character and I had no idea what Desmond was doing during these three minutes or so that this was happening. And I, I I got that a couple of times during the battle sequences where I just felt like I lost sight of what was uh, what Desmond was doing versus what the other characters were doing was all. I mean, because this is supposed to be from his own perspective, is it not? So I, I found it weird that we lost sight of that for a little while. Yeah, I, I could feel that. Uh, what did you think about Rupert Gregson Williams' score? Loved it. I loved it because it's not every day that I hear a score that just embraces how old school and just overly dramatic and sappy it wants to be. I think a lot of scores nowadays are very um, manufactured. Um, they're not also the types of scores that they're very like also electronic. There's a lot of electronic scores and a lot of synthesizers and things like that being used nowadays to create a soundtrack for a film. This is your traditional strings and or, orchestral, and I, I just really dug it, man. I, I liked it a lot, so much so that I mistakenly, and you corrected me on this, I, I thought it was a Thomas Newman score when I heard it. I To a T, I thought it was a Thomas Newman score. I was thinking about this. A lot of films tried to bury the score nowadays. You know, there was a, a video on Marvel scores and how they all kind of seem to blend together. Nowadays, and part of the reason is they don't want them to be distinctive. I think people are scared to have a really big swelling score like this. And I'm glad that Hacksaw went for that. You know, you look back at Braveheart. Part of the reason Braveheart is so affecting is because James Horner, you know, it is not a subtle score. But no, you get not at all. chills when those bagpipes come in. And I feel like it was kind of the same here. I mean, particularly the track... Uh, that plays when everything goes into slow motion during the final charge up Hacksaw Ridge. I mean, gorgeous, gorgeous work with strings there. So I, I definitely enjoyed that. Um, I also thought we need to give a shout out to the makeup. You know, it's it's worth noting we're an Oscar podcast. Um, 
every Mel Gibson film he's directed since Braveheart has gotten nominated for Best Makeup. And I think there's a decent chance this film continues that trend. Those were some gruesome wound effects. Really uh, great stuff. And then also, not just because he came on our show, I would like us to give a special shout out to the sound team, uh, both the Foley guys and Kevin and the rest of the mixers. The sound is utterly immersive. I mean, you feel those bullet hits. You feel the flames burning around you, particularly the sounds of dirt falling against metal helmets, I thought. The sound is visceral. And, I mean, there is a long storied history of war films with good sound design, but I think Hacksaw stands out. I mean, it is impeccably mixed, and I would love to see it, both its sound editors and its sound mixers, get some Oscar nomination or even win love come this January and February. Well, you pretty much stole uh, my thunder from me here when I was going to ask you for your final thoughts, final score, and the Oscar potential. You pretty much covered the Oscar potential there, but in a great out of 10 and your final thoughts on the film, Will, how would you rate Hacksaw Ridge? So I would say final thoughts on the film. Um, it, it is at times a little cheesy, and I wish it had gotten more character development. Um, you know, it's, I don't think its script is as strong as Gibson's direction, but I think overall, it is a moving film. It is an extremely watchable film. And it was apparently an extremely rewatchable film because I enjoyed it on a second viewing. So I would give it a solid, uh, I'd give it a solid seven. Um, I would say Oscar prospects. I think it will get in for both sound categories. I predict it for makeup and it has an outside chance at score. If a couple of the major contenders fail, and the Academy is feeling particularly emotional, there is a small, tiny chance that it gets in for a Best Picture nomination, but I'm not currently predicting that. All right, then. I would say, too, that this film is probably up there, if not Mel Gibson's best directorial effort. Mind you, all of his directorial efforts have had flaws in them, but you are right about the rewatchability. His films are very rewatchable. All of them are. Even the P of the C, as I like to call it. And no, not the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Passion of the Christ. That film is so emotionally affecting, and I watch it every year around the Easter holiday season. I mean, that, that film is just insanely well well done. And I think that he does the same thing here. I think he finds the beautiful moments amongst the chaos. I think that he is able to tell the story in a way that gets you to root for this hero, this ordinary guy that did a very extraordinary thing. And I think that the performance from Andrew Garfield really carries the film overall. So from an Oscar prospect standpoint, I echo everything that you say about sound editing, sound mixing, makeup scores a potential possibility but i will say this if silence comes out and it is not well received i think we need to consider andrew garfield the best actor for hacksaw ridge particularly because that category especially compared to best actress is something of a wasteland yeah yeah i i completely agree i think if silence god forbid disappoints he could definitely be in contention here uh, he is that good, in my opinion. 
I hate to say it for anyone out there that thinks otherwise, but there's no way Gibson or the film is getting in for best picture and best director, in my opinion. I I know you think that it could have an outside shot. Best I picture, think it's I other. think it's unlikely, but I think it is a film that appeals to emotions and never count that out. Don't quote me. I mean, it is not in my predictions for best picture. Don't get me wrong. I think I could see a world in which it happened. All right, fair enough. So, film has flaws. Is it perfect? No. Are any of Mel Gibson's films perfect? Not particularly. But there is a quality to this film that does stay with you after you've watched it. And it does have its powerful moments. And the story deserves to be told. I would give Hacksaw Ridge an 8 out of 10. I I quite enjoyed it thoroughly. And I'm very, very, very pleasantly surprised to say such. Because when I first saw the trailer for this, I I was not won over by it. And I'm happy to be proven wrong. I'm happy that Mel Gibson, despite everything that you may think about the man, this guy still knows how to create one hell of a film. And speaking of which, you've got one hell of an interview coming right up with Kevin O'Connell. So let's get over to it, man. Let's uh, let's dive right into that interview now, shall we? Sounds good. There's something you got to see. Who did this? That's the card. We have to go back up tomorrow. And they're not gonna go up there without you. Help me. Go ahead and trust me. You better come home to me. Please, Lord. Help me get one more. Help me get one more. Hey there, I'm Will Mavity with the Next Best Picture Podcast, and we have with us today a man you may not immediately recognize his name, but I guarantee you you know his work. If you've ever seen Spider-Man, Transformers, Top Gun, Pitch Perfect, Twister, The Patriot, and most recently Mel Gibson's critically acclaimed World War II film Hacksaw Ridge, you have certainly heard his work. Kevin O'Connell, a 20-time Academy Award-nominated sound mixer, is joining us today. Kevin is the man responsible for the incredible balancing act of ensuring a film with its endless sound effects, music, on-set dialogue, ADR, and more, all meshed together to create the beautiful soundscapes and the movies you enjoy. Kevin, how are you? Hey, Will. Hey, but, oh, that's quite an introduction, man. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, all the more so because I'm talking to uh, a living legend. I could say on some level you uh, created the sounds of my childhood with a lot of the uh, early films. Gremlins gave me nightmares. So, Well, listen, man, I, I really appreciate that. But one thing I'd just like to let you know right off the bat is, I, listen, I, I didn't do any of that stuff alone. Uh, I... I was fortunate my entire career to be surrounded with incredibly talented, you know, not just re-recording mixers, but sound editors, sound designers, Foley walkers, ADR editors, dialogue editors. Just, you know, it takes a it takes a village to put together these soundtracks, and I'm just one, you know, I like to think of myself as one small cog in the wheel to, to make that happen. Well, man, so I guess... Uh... You know, you, you say it's it's a collaborative effort, but we do want to talk about you. So how did you first make your way into the sound industry? Uh, well, okay. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, uh, 19 years old, uh, I was an L.A. County firefighter. 
and uh, the idea was I wanted to get into the uh, LA, County, LA City Fire Department. And so what I was basically doing was I was riding around in a camp truck putting out brush fires for the LA County Fire Department. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was working during the summer, and my mother, uh, Skippy O'Connell, worked at 20th Century Fox in the sound department, and I came home from a fire that I had been on for three days, and um, I was burnt to pieces, you know, because uh, those, those uh, fires beat the crap out of you. And she said, you know, I, I really don't like you, you know, going in this line of work. I really wish you'd do something different. Why don't you come down to the studio and check it out, see if it's something you'd like. And I went down and I kind of checked it out and I thought, yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of boring that everyone sits in these dark rooms and just watches films spin around all day. Went back on the fire line for another few months and then thought about it a little more and said, well, you know, I'll go down and give it a shot. So I went down and, uh, and I went down to the studio called the Samuel Goldman Studios at the time and uh, spoke with a guy that worked there. His name was Don Rogers, and he said, you know, he'd love to have me start there, and, you know, he was willing to give me a job right away, and the pay was about four times as good. So in January of 1978, I started there, and I was very fortunate to work, you know, on, on some great films at that time, you know, uh, early on, like, uh, you know, Animal House and Grease, and uh, Hair was another film, and, uh, and, and ultimately, uh, you know, then the, the Empire Strikes Back uh, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So uh, that was how I got into it. Uh, and I, like I said, I got into it at a very early age. Oh, that's crazy, man. So I'm assuming, I guess, your love of working with explosion-filled films and war films kind of came from a fire department life. You've actually heard that stuff in real life. That's unbelievable. I didn't know that. Yeah, and no, I would say... I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, I think that if I had any reason to like those types of films, really, it's because they're they're really interesting to work on. It's really interesting to try to make explosions sound cool and sound different than every other explosion you work on, you know, or fire fire the same way. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of explosions actually in Hacksaw Ridge and a lot of fire too, and. Um, there's there's actually one scene in the very beginning of the movie that starts out with a bunch of uh, it, it's a, it's sort of a, a slow motion um, uh, scene uh, with, where we hear Andrew Garfield uh, doing some narration, reading like a psalm, and uh, there's all sorts of stylized action happening, and and that was kind of cool because we the the um, the deal for us was to take the fire and you know kind of rip all the high end off of it, and sort of stylize it a little bit. Same thing with the explosions and verb out all the dialogue so that it kind of sounded like it was in another world. So so that was kind of fun. But uh, you know, I, and I kind of dig doing that kind of stuff. So I guess if you're uh, if you're talking about that specifically in Hacksaw, how did you end up making Hacksaw stand out from both war films like Pearl Harbor you've done in the past? And in general, from many other war films, I mean, what is some specific stuff you did on this film to really give it its unique audio experience? Well, I, I wouldn't say there's anything specifically that I did other than, you know, I, I was part of a team. That team consisted of uh, sound designer Rob McKenzie and uh, co-supervising sound editor Andy Wright. And together, uh, we kind of attacked that, uh, the battle scenes, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, those type of movies are huge group efforts. And, uh, you know, I was, like I said, I was very lucky to work with two talented guys like Rob and Andy. And, you know, when we first watched the movie, 
the first thing we said to each other is, you know, there's about 300 explosions in this movie. We got to make sure that the explosions don't all sound the same. And we so we tried to put perspective on them. And some we added metal sounds to, and some we added debris and dirt sounds, and some we muffled and some we didn't muffle. Uh, because, uh, you know, when you're going to have that many explosions in a movie, you you got to change them up a little bit. Same with the incoming, you know, missile sounds, the mortar sounds that are, you know, whizzing over your head that are, you know, happen right before the bomb uh, hits. Is We, you know, wanted to uh, change all those up as much as we could, too. Um, and then, and then you know, the first battle of Hacksaw Ridge is about eight or eight or nine minutes of solid battle with no music behind it. So the sound team was kind of tasked to stitch together uh, this, you know, almost like a score of this entire battle that's going on. And there's the battle that's happening in front of your face with who's shooting at what time and with who. That's the easy stuff. But then filling in the blanks, which is the offstage battle, knowing when other explosions should hit, how many should hit, how many guns should be firing. You know, um, uh, there is a, a very talented sound editor by the name of Liam Price, who works uh, with Rob and Andy down in Australia, who uh, really spent a lot of time carefully choreographing that battle scene with the offstage weaponry. Um, and if I hadn't mentioned this earlier, um, this this whole gang, you know, we we mixed this film. Uh, it was mixed in two two uh, two places. I went down to Sydney, Australia, and worked for a month uh, pre-dubbing the film. And then we brought the film back to America, and we pre-dubbed uh, and we finaled the film at Sony Studios uh, in in America. Now, I guess on something like this, it's a massive group effort. What kind of input does a director like Mel Gibson give you? Does he himself have a specific idea for how he wants it to sound, or does he give you and the rest of your team and the sound editors relative free reign? Well, you know, all directors are different, and Mel is, is unique unto himself, and Mel likes to let us take a take a swing at it. And so the way this particular film worked is uh, I went down to Sydney with uh, Rob and Andy, and we, we pre-dubbed dialogue and sound effects at the same time. And uh, that way we kind of knew, knew we were in lockstep with each other as to, as to what, uh, you know, what, what, what was needed when and how much of, of what we needed. And we'd work on the battle scenes. And then, you know, we, the place we did this at in Australia is called Sound Firm. And it's a great facility. And, uh, you know, it has a mixing stage. Down the hall from it is the Foley stage. Down the hall from that's the ADR stage. Down the hall from that is where Mel was uh, sitting with picture editor John Gilbert. And they were, you know, cutting the picture away. And upstairs was the visual effects guy. So we were all kind of in this hunker down in this one facility. So... You know, Mel would just pop his head in the door at, you know, let's say, 3 o'clock in the afternoon to say hi, and we'd say, hey, uh, yeah, we're going to play some of the battle, and we'd play it for him. He'd go, you know, he'd go, gosh, guys, that's really cool. Uh, you know, do we have some, can we have some extra fireballs for this guy, and can we have some extra screams for that guy? And we'd say, sure, no problem. And then, you know, we'd see him again in a day or so. And that's kind of how we stitched it all together, but it, it, took, it took a while. Now, you said um, every director is different. Are there some you've worked with who have particularly... Uh they want a lot of involvement in the overall soundscape? Absolutely. You know, you have, you have two ends of the extreme. You have, you know, Tony Scott, who I sat side by side with on, I think, 14 of his movies, uh, beginning with Top Gun all the way to his last film, Unstoppable. And Tony's style is unique unto uh, no other. He sat directly by my side, and we literally dismantled every single scene going through dialogue, music, and sound effects. And, and what we would do is 
he would always want us to try to figure out what what we needed to you know use what sound would drive the scene the best and either it was a, a you know a ticking bomb or if the ticking bomb wasn't doing it, it he would look into the music to see which thread of the music we take apart each stem of the music until until he found exactly the pulse he was looking for to drive the scene um, and 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 sometimes we would do it with dialogue depending on on, on a particular movie and literally we would mix a movie 10 feet at a time which is like 10 seconds at a time and uh, and it was a I would say a painstaking process but Tony Scott was one of the greatest guys I've ever worked with in my life and it was he was the most rewarding guy I've ever worked with so it was one of the most rewarding processes I've ever been through working with him as well so you have him on one end of the spectrum and then you have the uh, you know and nowadays directors are not by their own choice are off doing all sorts of other things while we're mixing the movie they're off uh, working on color timing or they're working on visual effects or they're even still editing the movie since now uh, everything's digital you can edit the movie right up to the last minute and so they're not around as much. So what happens is we end up putting the whole movie together for them, and then we bring them in and we run it for them, and then they give us input. Where with Tony, he sat with us every step of the way through the process. You know, it's funny you mention Unstoppable, because actually a few weeks ago on the podcast, we were mentioning on how well that film has held up and how it's one of the best blockbusters of recent years. That was definitely one where the sound stood out. It's fascinating to hear how much Tony's fingers were in there, and it just makes me miss him once again. He was a hell of a director. Uh, I'm telling you, Tony, on that movie, he was, you know, listen, I, like I said, I've worked with him for a long time. He's he's, he's actually my favorite. I, I, I love Tony Scott. He, um, I had a very special relationship with him, uh, you know, having done so much shows together. He literally would pick out each train sound for each train pass by and we play him alternatives until he got exactly what he wanted oh that's how precise he was about about uh, about what we you know uh, what we stitched together for him you know that's crazy that someone is uh is that particular on that i guess when it comes to you do you mainly operate by instinct or do you have certain ideas in mind is it a planned process going by numbers and is it kind of analytical uh, you know, I'll tell you, every film is different, and every film requires a different sensibility. And uh, you know, early on, I, I didn't think that, and I just, you know, uh, you know, uh, just kind of approached every film the same. Uh, being, you know, kind of young, I started mixing them. Uh, you know, 23, 24. But, you know, now I look at each film individually for what that film is, and and how through the use of sound we can help tell the story. And, 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 you know, and, and, and because of all the experience I've had with guys like Tony Scott and Michael Bay and Jerry Bruckheimer over the years on so many films, I've, 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 I've you know, I've really honed in the, um, the skill of, of, of taking each scene individually or each piece individually and trying to figure out exactly what's the most important thing in that scene. Because you take a film like Hacksaw Ridge, you can't hear everything at once. You've got to focus on specific things. Otherwise, it would drive you crazy if we just played everything at the same level at the same time. So every single cut of Hacksaw Ridge is very cleverly placed as to how loud the background explosions are, the foreground explosions, the bullet impacts, the whiz-bys that are going overhead. To, you know, everything is, is, is carefully uh, placed at a certain level so that it doesn't fatigue you too much because obviously the battle itself is pretty fatiguing after a, a while of working on it, you know, working on a 10 minute battle for 
several weeks uh, at those levels uh, can kind of wear you down a bit. Now, there's a lot of slow-mo in, the, in Hacksaw Ridge. How is it working with a film that is so heavy on that? Well, you know, uh, that's where, uh, the, I guess if there was anything that, you know, was uh, the, the, peri- the, the times when uh, we got most input from Mel was on those scenes. Um, you know, uh, the, the live action, you know, straight stuff is, was, was pretty much, um, went pretty much pretty smooth. When we got in the slow-mo, then it got, you know, a very stylized as to what we should be hearing. For example, when the guys are getting torched with the flamethrowers, you know, the sound of the flamethrower is important for the first couple of seconds that the flame comes out. But then after a while, that the sound of the flamethrower is not as important as the guys screaming who are getting torched. And that becomes our focus. And so we, we spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out uh, that dynamic. Hmm. Now, you, uh, you keep mentioning the team, and obviously there is a large team on that. Um, I guess talk to me about what it's like and what your relationship is with the Foley team and the composer in films in general and in particular this one working with Rupert Gregson-Williams. Right. Well, listen, we were real fortunate to get Rupert Gregson Williams on this film. Uh, he, he did a really terrific job. Um, it, it was a little unusual for me to be involved this early in the process uh, with the score because uh, when I was down in Sydney with uh, the, the gang, uh, uh, Rupert was just uh, getting together, you know, putting demos together of his score, and he would send them from uh, England down to Mel. Um, and Mel would audition them, and sometimes he would bring them on the stage, and we'd play them against the mix that we were doing of the dialogue and the effects so that Mel could hear how the score was sounding against the effects. And he would ask all of us our opinion, and so you know we would, we would chime in with how we felt uh, about uh, whether or not uh, uh, the score was uh, you know, helping, hurting, terrific, whatever. And you know, 99% of the time it was fantastic, and you know, every once in a while we'd say, well, in this particular area, it seems more like the sound effects are handling this element. Perhaps uh, music could change up this, this, and this. And uh, Mel would uh, relay that back to uh, Rupert, and uh, the next time we heard that piece, it was all done. So in that respect, it was really cool. The Foley, uh, since they have a Foley stage right there, uh, it was fantastic. They were able to, uh, uh, you know, we would have needs where we'd say, uh, hey, uh, you know, it'd be great if this cargo net sounded like, you know, we, we heard like instead of three or four guys, we sounded like a hundred guys on the on the cargo net. So uh, the Foley guys would, you know, take an hour and uh, we'd, we'd make the request and they'd shoot us back uh, the, uh, you know, the cargo net Foley uh, like an hour later and we'd put it into the movie. It was fantastic. That sounds so fun. You said uh, you said you'd been with you were attached early to the project, which is interesting, I guess, for a sound mixer. So I guess Mel Gibson reached out to you as soon as he was going to start the film. Actually, it was it was Bill Mechanic, the producer, uh, and I uh, talked about um, almost a year prior to uh, to the to the to them going down and shooting it. Uh, they knew that they were going to have to do the whole movie uh, down in Australia at that point uh, for the Australian rebate that they were going to get. They get much more for your dollars down there. And um, Bill reached out to me and asked me if I thought I could put some time on hold for the following summer for a month or two to go down to Sydney and do it. And I said, absolutely, I'll do that. You know, I, you know, I, uh, anytime you get to work with Mel Gibson is a, is a plus for me. So I said, sure. And, uh, 
And then as we got closer and closer, uh, the date turned out to be about a month down in Sydney, and then we did another month back here at, uh, in, in Los Angeles. How did you end up getting involved with uh, guys, with, I guess, your regular collaborators like Michael Bay and Mel Gibson? I guess, how has time developed with them, too? The way I got involved, I think, with Michael on the first show, which was his very first uh, film, Bad Boys, was it was a Bruckheimer film, and uh, Jerry Bruckheimer film, and I had done many Jerry Bruckheimer films, you know, dating back to Top Gun, and uh, and so uh, Michael was a first-time director at that point, and, uh, and so Jerry said, you know, he'd like to mix it with us. So uh, that's how I first met Michael, and then I went on to do about seven films with Michael, uh, up to his uh, first Transformer movie, and uh, and you know, Michael, I got to watch him grow from a first-time director to just a, a super director. You know, he uh, he totally uh, uh, you know emerged as one of the leading directors of our era right now, and uh, I, I felt uh, privileged to kind of work with him. He's a wild man to work for. You know, uh, everybody has their style. Michael has his style, and um, and uh, you know, Michael, uh, when you when you work on a Michael Bay movie, you better make sure you're making some cool sounds because he'll let you know real quick if he if if he doesn't think it's cool. And uh, he's a Michael's a very smart guy, and he hires very talented uh, people to work with. Um, he his uh, current sound editing team is Ethan Vanderen and Eric Adol. Uh, they're the guys that uh, did the first Transformer movie, and then I think every movie ever since. And if you think about it, you know, Transformers are nothing more than visual effects or you know, expensive cartoons. I know the visual effects guys are even for saying that, but that's what they are. And at the end of the day, the fact that you believe they're doing and they're ta- they're sa- doing what they're doing and saying what they're saying is a testament to the sound designers, uh, especially Ethan and Eric, who did such an amazing job on on, on that film and, and so many other films since. Um, uh, that is really, I believe, um, one of the, one of the coolest movies I've worked on in a, in a really long time, that first Transformer movie. You said it's pretty wild. Do you have any particularly entertaining stories or anecdotes? From that uh, you know, I, I can tell you one, you know, uh, uh, Michael, like I said, he's the type of guy that likes to let you know right away whether you're doing something right or wrong. And, uh, and, uh, we were working on Pearl Harbor and they're, you know, bringing some planes up on an aircraft carrier on an elevator, and he wanted it louder, and, and we go, you, you want, we, I said, you want it louder? He goes, yeah, I want it louder. He goes, you, have you ever been on a fucking aircraft carrier? And I said, no. He goes, well, they're pretty fucking loud. And I went, <laughs> okay. So we raised the aircraft carrier elevator. Um, the irony to that is that uh, a couple months later, uh, we were at the world premiere of Pearl Harbor, which took place in Pearl Harbor, Aboard, aboard an actual aircraft carrier, the USS John Stennis. And uh, my partner and I are, are, are standing on the elevator, uh, the aircraft elevator. That's how they got us up to the ship. And we were about halfway up. And I looked at my partner, Greg Russell, and I said, you know what? The, the elevator doesn't make any sound at all. <laughs> we started laughing our asses off. And then when we got up to the top of the ship, we found Michael and we kind of busted his balls about it a little bit and uh, had a good laugh. And so now there's actually a, a running joke uh, in our community about, uh, uh, like, uh, on the um, on, on Hacksaw Ridge when the guys are getting burned up and the guys are screaming, we'll say, have you ever been fucking cooked with a flamethrower? Well, they're pretty fucking loud, you know, and, 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 and every movie now we use that as kind of a joke uh, moving forward. So it's been a bit of a fun thing. 
I, I guess since you're talking about loudness and sounds that stand out, how important is subtlety in sound design? Are you, are you someone who's more of a fan of, you said you love the Transformers, the really loud, obvious sound design? Uh, now, now I, 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 not necessarily loud. The Transformers, when they transform, per se, aren't loud. Um, you know, if you, listen, if you take a movie like Jurassic Park, those dinosaurs uh, that Gary Wrightstrom crafted so, you know, skillfully, you believe those dinosaurs because of the sound of those dinosaurs. There's nothing like that. Same with the Transformer movie. Same with the King Kong movie. You know, King Kong doesn't exist. Those guys created those sounds and created those characters through the use of sound. That's, the, the, you know, King Kong just sitting there, you hear the sound of his arm moving. You know, Transformer, when he picks a, a something up, you're hearing every mechanism in that hand uh, and in that arm. Sound design on every level is important, whether it's loud or gentle, you know. I mean, the gentle sound designs are just as important as the loud ones. It's about how clever they are that... Uh, that I think is important. And, you know, uh, all these movies we're talking about, we have, these are some of the most talented people on the planet uh, putting these sounds together. When you're working with subtle sounds like that, I mean, you've got World War II, you've, you've had NASCAR with Talladega Nights, you've had Aztec Sacrifice, Apocalypto. I mean, with all these little noises, what do you do into deciding, I mean, what kind of research goes into getting an authentic sound to make something come to life like that? Well, I can tell you on, on Hacksaw Ridge, uh, the, the gang, Rob McKenzie and, and Andy uh, Wright and Liam Price, these guys uh, did some extensive research on the weaponry and made sure that we had period correct authentic weapons. But the, the reality is, is that sometimes they don't always sound as cool as they look, right? Um, Hacksaw Ridge, the battle scenes, uh, you know, 95% of the production track was unusable on, on, on Hacksaw Ridge because the guns are props. They shoot half loads that sound more like firecrackers. The explosions look cool, but they sound, they sound more like, you know, uh, they, they sound more like, uh, you know, uh, cap guns going off or something. It, it, it really had to be stripped out and all replaced. So the guys started with all period correct, uh, um, guns but then like if you take vince vaughn's gun in reality his gun sounds more like a pea shooter in real life so there's about 12 guns that make up vince vaughn's gun and we have to do that for you know for uh you know because it's hollywood and we need to make it sound like a cool movie right and uh and and so uh we start with period correct stuff but then we have to enhance it to to uh, get more dramatic out of it drama out of it so I guess you uh, you need some pretty major technology to enhance a sound like that. And with Transformers, you couldn't have made sound like that. You'd mentioned to me earlier that digital technology is shaking everything up. How has this changed everything in the business of sound mixing since you started 30-something years ago? Well, listen, man. Uh, when, 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 when I started 30 years ago, uh, there was no digital. There was no automation. Automation means that your your mixing console is com- computerized. So uh, so if you have a track and you raise it and lower it, uh, now it, the computer remembers that move and does it for you every single time. So if you take a chase scene like Spider Man, where Spider Man's uh, you know being chased down a, a subway train that's going crazy and there's you know uh, cop cars, you know uh, with lights and sirens and bullets and, and ricochets and, and uh, car skids, 
and you do a whole scene like that, and then the director comes in and says, you know, the whole scene's great, just can you lower the siren? In, in you know, 25 years ago, when there's no automation, you'd have to mix the entire scene over again, which could take a day, just to lower the siren. Now you can just go in and lower the siren. So it was a, it was a whole different animal uh, 30 years ago. There was no fader automation. You were mixing real time. Uh, so a, a movie like Top Gun, uh, while we're mixing along, if I would stop and, and Tony Scott would ask us to stop and go back and raise or lower the jet, you had to make sure every single sound matched before you could punch into that movie again. So it became very, uh, it was like a pressure cooker trying to make sure your levels matched all the time, make sure that you knew where you were all the time because you would mix the, you would mix a scene and then you might not come back to that scene for a week and then they'd say, let's update the scene. You'd have to try to remember where all your faders were and there's about, you know, 60 or 70 of them and you have to make sure they're all in the right spot to be able to even start recording again. So the technology has completely simplified that aspect of it. And all it's done is give us better tools to help tell the story better. So now we don't have to be worried so much about where we were mix-wise. We could just focus on the mix because now everything's automated. It sounds like it does a lot of good. Is Has anything been lost with the switch to digital and all this progress? Um, yeah, no, nah, I don't think anything's been lost. Uh, not really. Uh, I think movies sound better than they ever have. I mean, I think the movies in the past sounded really great with the technology that was available, but uh, now the tools are so good that I, I think it's I, I think it's just getting better and, and only going to get better from here on. You know, you talked about the technologies change. They sound better than ever. I guess in the last five years, are there any particular films, aside from the ones you've worked on, that really stood out to you for some creative, unique, excellent sound work? Uh, yeah, you know, I thinking back, um, I, I think first movie that comes to mind is Gravity. I thought Gravity was an amazing job. The movie lent itself really well to sound. And I think the guys who did that, Skip Lefse and the, and the rest of the gang that did that movie, did, a, did an amazing job on that movie. It really stands out. Um, more recently, uh, Mad Max, I thought, was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Mark Mangini and his, and his team uh, worked on that and really put together an amazing track. Um, and, and I heard that in the Academy Theater, and it, it really kicked butt. Uh, and then, and then also Birdman, I, I think, was a was another fantastic movie for sound. And uh, Aaron Glasscock and uh, John and Frankie, the mixers at Universal, put that together, and they did a great job as well. That was a perfect movie for sound. Uh, and th- those are the three that come to mind right now. You know, this is this is an Oscar podcast. Is there anything this year beyond Hacksaw and Passengers that you think anything that's come out this year is worthy of awards consideration? You know, I haven't had the opportunity to go see any of the uh, films this year because it's just been a crazy busy year for me. Uh, I know there's a lot of great work out there. Um, I know the guys. I, I heard the guys on Deepwater Horizon did a great job. Uh, it sounds fantastic. Let me tell you. Like, yeah, I mean, I listen. They they always do good work. Uh, you know, Wiley Statement and his gang. Uh, they always do good work. Um, you know, I'm sure La La Land's going to be great. I heard Andy Nelson mix that. I haven't seen it, but I, you know, he always does first rate work. Um, so those are the ones uh, two that I'm looking forward to right now. Uh, as soon as I can, you know, get done with this film, hopefully I'll get a chance to see some of those uh, movies uh, at the end of the year here. 
Well, you said uh, you're still working on passengers then. Uh, do you want to tell us any about kind of what you're doing for passengers? Uh, well, listen, I, I'm very fortunate on passengers to be working with this incredibly uh, talented sound designer, Will Files. Uh, you would have recently heard his work in the, you know, the Planet of the Apes movies, uh, the, the Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Um, he's, he's been doing a, a great work for a long time and I was fortunate enough to, he's a sound designer on the film and also the sound, uh, a sound effects mixer. So I'm mixing with him and he and his team have done an amazing job. This uh, film takes uh, place on a spaceship, uh, w- uh, pretty far in the future. And Will and his team have done an amazing job of giving this spaceship a character. It's a total character in the movie. Um, uh, and uh, I, listen, I can't speak uh, highly enough of these guys because this. When I first saw the, the first uh, screening of this film, uh, it was a uh, you know a couple of uh, actors running around on a green sc- green screen set, and now that green screen's all been filled in with spaceship. And these guys have just done an amazing job of bringing the ship to life and, and making it really cool. I mean, I can't wait to see that, too. I, I'm a sucker for sci-fi films in general, and I assume from what you've worked on in the past, you are as well, so I'm beyond hyped to see what you guys have done there, particularly with this renaissance of modern sci-fi films. I, I have to ask, you've worked on two potentially wonderfully sounding films this year. You're looking at maybe Oscar nominations 21 and 22, you are, I, I believe, the most nominated sound mixer in Academy history, and you are the most nominated person in Oscar history not to win an award yet. Um, how are you feeling about this year? Well, that's a lot of stuff to think about, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, golly, uh, well, um, let's take it one piece at a time. Uh, what do I think about this year? Listen, I think it would be great for for uh, Will Files uh, to get recognized on Passengers. It's an amazing job. Uh, you know, uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt are 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 so amazing in this movie. It's a terrific uh, film. Um, the the score is amazing, and I think that uh, you know, uh, for Will and 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 his team, I think it would be fantastic if 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 the film got some recognition. And uh, on Hacksaw Ridge, you know, Rob and Andy, those guys uh, busted their butt on that movie and uh, really kind of stepped up up to the plate. And I would love to see, uh, nothing I'd rather see than them get some recognition. As far as myself, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I, I, it, that stuff's cool, but it 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 uh, it isn't what it, it isn't what drives me every day. Um, um, I, I think it's I think it's it would be great, and, and believe me, I'd be humbled by it if something like that were to happen. But uh, but I, I like I said, I'd really love to see the guys uh, get some recognition for it. As far as the amount of nominations, uh, I can only attest that to the fact that I've sat next to some amazing people in my career. Uh, recently, Greg Russell, I worked with for 10 years, a, a fantastic re-recording mixer. Before that, Rick Klein for many years, uh, Don Mitchell and uh, Bill Varney. And when you work with guys like that, you're, you, you know, I was very fortunate to, to, to get one, let alone whatever, 20 nominations. As far as being the most without winning, I pray that no one else ever beats that record because I wouldn't <laughs> wish that upon anybody. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not the begrudging guy. I, I believe everybody has a path, and, and it just hasn't been my path to win so far. Every film that's ever beat me, I think, was fantastic and deserved to win. And, uh, and you know, if it happens for me someday, that would be great. 
and uh, and uh, it's just this has just been my story, and and it is what it is. And uh, you know, I'm just grateful that I work in a business that is as cool as the film business. I'm grateful that I got a great wife and two really amazing children. And uh, to me, that's the, what's the the real icing on the cake for me. Um, and and awards are great, but but that stuff's cool too. You know, it's it's funny. I will say though, these uh, these nominations. Watching the behind-the-scenes stuff they showed at the Oscars, I love those little montages they do of uh, Apocalypto and Transformers and kind of how you guys worked on the teams to create those sounds. It's one of the things that got me into Oscar coverage. So, I mean, at the very least, those nominations have been fascinating stuff, man. I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the sound in Hacksaw, and I personally think Hacksaw has a big shot at being a major Oscar player this year. And in particular, you and your team and the Foley guys sound. So I got my fingers crossed for that. Um, as far as other people you've worked with, uh, you've worked with. Are there any up and coming directors you'd like to see yourself working with in the future? Uh, well, there's a there's a guy that we did a a, a small uh, a movie called Hardcore Henry for, it, and the director's name was Ilya Neshuler. And he's a Russian guy, and he is phenomenal. And, uh, you know, Hardcore Henry was a very low-budget movie. I think they made it for a couple of million dollars or whatever. And I believe he is going to be a fantastic uh, director, and I, I would love the opportunity to work with him again. And, uh, and you know, this year also I had a great opportunity to work with Elizabeth Banks on Pitch Perfect 2, and it was her first uh, directing job. And, uh, listen, she was such a pleasure to work for. I have a lot of respect for her. She was smart, and funny, amazing, and um, and uh, you know I would welcome the opportunity to work with her again. Um, I really enjoy working with uh, first-time directors because you get to see in their face the joy that you can bring them by doing such things that I, I take for granted every single day that I do and that we do uh, on the sound team. But for them, it's like helping bring in their baby to life. <laughs> and so I actually really enjoy uh, working with first time, you know, new directors and producers and, and uh, helping them, uh, helping them, uh, you know, through the process. How did you choose a, uh, a pitch perfect? You know, you, you have a wide array of projects. You go from something like uh, a Hacksaw Ridge, a gory war film to something like pitch perfect. You know, it's not like uh, it's not like uh, you know. I, I there's like ten movies, and I just choose which one I want to do. Uh, they sort of just come along, and they come along at you for different reasons. They they come because of uh, you know maybe an association with a picture editor or an association with a director or producer. And uh, I can't exactly remember how the first Pitch Perfect came around, but it, it, I think it came through the, the the gang in the music department that I'd worked with on a prior film. Um, and then, you know, uh, and then if, if that's a good experience, then, you know, that, that first Pitch Perfect movie was directed by a guy named Jason Moore, who's a, an amazing guy, um, who went on to do a movie called Sisters that we did for him last year. We might be doing something again for him soon. Um, and he, and he was a first time director. So it was great, you know, to, to be able, like I said, to, to watch them when their movie comes to life is just great. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we get movies through all sorts of different ways. There's all sorts of different relationships and ways in which movies come to us. So uh, there's no real set-in-stone way for that. Do you have any uh, other interesting projects kind of coming down the pipe you've already started working well, on? Well, yeah, you know, I have a couple of cool ones I have, uh, but right now I can't really talk about it. Cause of course. It's sort of, a, you know, one of those... Uh, 
kind of uh, secretive type things uh, here, but uh, I definitely have something cool uh, that I'm going to probably be going on to that's going to be coming out next summer that's sort of going to be cool, and uh, and I'd be happy to chat with you about it again uh, when we get down there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have anything else you want to tell people about Passengers, about Hacksaw, or about the sound mixing life in general? Well, uh, listen, the sound mixing life in general has been a great life for me. Uh, I, I, like I said, I, I've uh, worked with some amazing people in my career. Uh, so many directors, uh, Tony Scott, Michael Bay, um, Mel Gibson, uh, producer Jerry Bruckheimer, all those guys helped shape my life and my career, you know, by working on such great movies with them. But also, you know, there's so many sound editors, uh, men and women alike, uh, who have done so much for me. They've been patient while I learned. They've been patient while I was a jerk uh, um, and, uh, you know, sat beside me and helped me over the years that I would never have been able to do what I've been doing without them. Fantastic Foley people. I've, uh, you know, I've worked with so many great Foley teams over the years that it's just been great. And... Um, and picture editors, you know, picture editors are also a big part of what we do. You know, they 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 eat uh, eat uh, drink and smoke and sleep and live these movies with us, and uh, they're fantastic people who've uh, helped me shape my career as well. So I, I would I'd like to thank all of those people if I had the opportunity to do do that all at once. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I hope that when you know I don't think. I don't think the general public understands when they go see a movie like Jurassic Park that those dinosaurs actually, you know, I know they know they don't exist, but they, I don't think they understand what goes into making them as believable as they are, as, as cool as those dinosaurs need to look, they need to sound twice as cool for us to believe them. Same with the Transformer movie, same with the King Kong movie, even Deepwater Horizon, you know, they, they, they didn't go up and blow up an oil rig. That's all special uh, visual effects. And these really talented guys put all that work together to make you believe you're on that oil rig as it's, as it's falling apart. And I just don't know if the general public understands all that, um, but uh, that's kind of what we do in the sound business. And uh, listen, I'm really proud to be just kind of a small part of that. That's a great answer, man. That's all I have for you. So thank you so much for coming on to the Next Best Picture podcast. I would say everyone who's listening, please be on the lookout for Kevin and his team's wonderful work in Hacksaw Ridge and Theaters Now, and also in Passengers coming out next month. Kevin, we wish you the best of luck on hopefully Oscar nomination 21 and ideally Oscar win number one. But thank you so much. Hey, Will, thanks very much, man. I really appreciate it and um, look forward to uh, hoping, hoping to meet you someday. Sounds great, man. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Exactly.
life sucks as a grown-up. All right, I think that was good enough. I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> no. Right.